0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crazy Money. Hope you're doing great today. It is uh, officially back-to-school time for everybody in the country. We are just up in New York City this weekend and noted that school had just started up there. We in the South have been back in school for a month, and in some districts, six weeks. It's crazy. Anyway, hope the school year is going well for you, and if you're an empty nester, hope the adjustment is uh, working out that you're taking advantage of things like travel and exercise. Maybe you're sleeping a little later. Could that be possible? Anyway, good luck with all of that. I've been thinking about what life is going to be like in six or so years when we're empty nesters. Inshallah. Inshallah? Inshallah. Hey, my guest this week is a guy named Garrett Gunderson. He is a New York Times bestselling author and the funniest financial speaker in the world, except for me, of course. He's the son of Utah coal miners, Garrett wants to teach others how to become financially independent and have a laugh along the way. He's written several books, including Disrupting Sacred Cows, Killing Sacred Cows. Hey, don't be mean to sacred cows. And What Would Billionaires Do? Among others, his new book, Money Unmasked, comes out October 3rd of 2023. You're probably listening to this decades in the future. So it's not a new release. It's there somewhere on Amazon or whatever artificial intelligence you use to buy books in this conversation Garrett and I talk about comedy his excellent hair good parenting growing up half Mormon and half Catholic the concept of being frugal versus being cheap his pre-2008 arrogance in which he drove a Bentley and along those lines what a financial dick pick is we talk about the power of laughter the dirty word his grandmother loved oh she was a dirty one and most importantly what he learned from the death of his business partners As you'll hear, Garrett and I have a lot in common, so this is a bit of a sprawling and sometimes inside baseball conversation about money and comedy. Speaking of which, his new comedy special, The American Ream, will be out soon. See links to Garrett's website and a link to Amazon to pre-order his new book. What's the name of the new book? Money Unmasked. This, my friends, is Garrett Gunderson. How's life?
1: You know, 90% of it's as best it's ever been. A little 10% annoyance, though. That I'm dealing with
0: Is it never not ten percent annoying?
1: Yeah, I think that the ten percent's more annoying than normal, but I'm hopefully handling it this week. But the ninety percent's a high ratio right now, like I've been working on things for a while, and they really come to fruition, so it's really cool.
0: You're quite a busy guy, like I've heard of you before, but I haven't dived into your stuff until this week, and I've spent a few hours listening to your stuff, reading your stuff, watching your comedy. And so for people that don't know you, you're a four-time author, you're a speaker, life coach, you've got a one-hour comedy, one-man show about money, yep. you're founder of a place called The Wealth Factory, and that just leads me to one question. What kind of shampoo do you use?
1: A Vita. They have this stuff so to make sure I don't go too bald, Yeah. so that's the thing. It's
0: working, man. <laughs> it's really working.
1: I just turned forty-five, so it's staying here. I, I like it. It can keep going gray if that's what it wants to do. I just have made a deal with it. Has to stay, but it can go whatever color it wants.
0: Did your dad have amazing hair?
1: You know, my dad has decent hair. He definitely started to go bald a little bit earlier. He has enough hair that even in seventy, he's got hair. Yeah, but it's pretty thin. Yeah, my grandfather though, his dad, amazing hair till the day he died. Right. Like, but like thick and kind of curly, very, very good hair.
0: There's that whole thing about it comes from your mother's father. And I look exactly like my father did, who was almost totally bald, right? And I'm half bald, like very little coverage here. My grandfather died. My, my mom's dad died early. And so like at 32, he still looked like a Mon Chi Chi with a with a hair, you know, line down to here. So I, I don't know where it comes from. My mom's dad, my grandpa on that side, yeah. bald.
1: <laughs> Just straight bald. Like, my favorite person on earth, other than my wife, was my grandfather. Just the best dude ever, but like as bald as could be from an early age. Like, I never remember him having hair other than he had a toupee that was obviously a du- toupee. Right. Like, too early in the days for it. Didn't have that thing figured out, and you could tell.
0: Okay, but seriously, I look at all your stuff. You're an accomplished author, you're an accomplished comedian, you're an accomplished financial advisor, entrepreneur. Who are you? Where did you come from? Like, How did all this come together? I do
1: have to credit my parents substantially for that, and especially my mom, because my family is from a long generations of coal miners. My dad was a coal miner, both my grandfathers, even my great-grandfather, and I remember one time my dad said I was mad at him. He wanted me to practice my guitar, and I was pissed, so I said, I'm going to be a coal miner then. And that was like the biggest insult, you know, for him, for me to say. And my mom was like, you're never going to step foot in a coal mine because they really try to like summer job you with the best rates possible. Mm -hmm. And I played sports. So my parents were like, you can't even work there if you wanted to because of that. So I actually started a business at 15 washing cars. And my mom worked at a credit union and they would repossess vehicles and I'd wash them. And then my dad worked at the coal mine and they'd bring home surface vehicles. I'd help clean them. And when I was 15, I did a competition for a rural young entrepreneur and I took third place, came with 500 bucks and I had only made like $700 in my business at the time. So I was like, damn, I could give one speech and make 500 bucks or I could scrub bugs and tar off a car. So I think that's the day I kind of became more of an entertainer and speaker because the only reason I took third at that competition is because I made the judges laugh. And I was as nervous (laughs) as could be going in there, but I made him laugh, you know?
0: Right. What part of Utah is this in?
1: So where I grew up originally till third grade was a little tiny town called East Carbon, Utah. Mm -hmm. So Carbon County is kind of the heart of Utah. If you look at the location, south central part of, if you go two hours southeast of Salt Lake City, you end up in Carbon County, which is these little towns, Helper, Price, you know, Wellington, East Carbon. And so I grew up in East Carbon, which is really kind of, I think at its peak, it had 5,000 people and two cops. Now it has 1,000 people and five cops. That's huge growth. That is
0: like 300% growth, man.
1: (laughs) That's right. Not not good. So (laughs) so basically, you know, that place is dying. And um, the people in price that from third grade on where I lived, they're pretty amazing people. Like I've had them show up that I haven't seen them since I was 18 years old. And they show up to a comedy show of mine. Yeah. They follow and pay attention to what i 'm doing and root me on like they 're pretty amazing people, even though it 's a blue collar town and we could we joke about it sometimes. I feel pretty fortunate to grow up there. There is some kind of limited perspective that comes with a town like that sometimes, but also like I had teachers that got me into this competing with my business. I had people showing me how to do balance sheets and income statements that worked at the school district when I was 15 years old. So wow. I think a lot of it just came from a, my mom really pushed me and showed tons of love and care. And my dad was supportive in anything that I did. And so like, that's not usually, you know, a lot of people have these stories of, of really rough upbringing. And you know, like I had my issues, like I hit my car when I was three, which explains probably why I thought I should be a comedian. You know, I had some issues, but ultimately, I really feel like the reason I felt like I could do anything was because my grandfather showed me unconditional love. My parents always encouraged and supported me when I had these ideas. And I'm, I'm married pretty well because my wife, even when I tell her these things like, babe, I think I should do comedy. And she's like, eh. I don't know if you're that funny like you know because she's thinking oh damn our life's gonna depend on this i better discourage this because it doesn't take much well you know i don't know
0: if you've read anything about me but i told my wife on our first date i'm gonna quit my job at yahoo and i'm gonna be a comedian and i did that a a year later she was just like okay i mean i guess she thought i was tall enough and had a decent nose so she was like whatever you'll never do it and i did it (laughs) a year later and then i did it for two years in la full time i quit doing comedy because we got engaged i was like I think I need a real job, like a real stable job. And that's how I stumbled into a job at Facebook early. And so her acceptance of it, just like, Oh, you go ahead and go do that. It all worked out quite nicely. And now I'm back doing it and we have enough that I can do it and we don't have to worry about cash. So it's a wonderful thing.
1: That's awesome. So like how often are you doing comedy and hundreds of
0: times per year headline where they'll have me. And I was at an open mic at a dingy bar last night i'll be headlining one of the nicest country clubs in the southeast next week so it's like i'll do it wherever you know the lovely ride of comedy
1: where like <laughs> i literally get paid sometimes 25 grand to do a corporate gig yep. and then i'm doing a headline at a dingy club that i walk away with 500 dollars.
0: <laughs> 500 dude that's righteous bucks
1: Like, I didn't even cash my first check that came from a comedy club. (laughs) No, I was like, I just like it that I could say I'm a comedian. I have my first, like, cash dollars over here, but I had people sign it, you know? Oh, that's great. And I was like, it's just something that I love. And just from the time I was five, man, my Who did
0: you watch? Who were the comedians you watched when you were five?
1: When I was young, the comedians I watched were- my uncles that were hilarious mm-hmm. and bill cosby i mean right you know bill cosby himself was the first one i really remember watching it Was epic and then i watched steve martin yep you know and just his energy and then what i realized is my uncles they were just hilarious and my mom had this infectious laugh and half of my family being from utah was mormon right and half of my family was catholic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. one thing i found is the catholics went to church like seven days a week, like my grandparents. The Mormons went to church for an entire day on Sunday, and you know, we're not supposed to swear or drink, but my uncles were not like that. And <laughs> I found out I could swear as long as it was in a joke. Right. And my grandma, she just died at 91, and every year at her birthday, she wants me to tell jokes that would definitely get me canceled at my level of following, mm. but she thinks it's hilarious and she's Mormon. And like some of the jokes that end in... T- I'm like, why does my 91 year old grandma know that word? That doesn't seem okay. But, but like, she would just like at her funeral, half of the speaker said, Oh, and she loved her grandson's jokes. And I'm just like, Man, those jokes, I had to tell the same ones over and over again. But, dude, I got to tell you the story. So, like, when I first got up on a stage and intentionally did comedy, I was inebriated drinking too much tequila. Mm-hmm. It was in Costa Rica at a formal black tie function in finance. And I had been telling jokes to uh, some of the people earlier in the day. So the jazz band finishes you. Those old-timey Mike is up Mm -hmm. there. And they're like, you should go go tell some jokes. And I was drunk enough that I was like, (laughs) you know, that's a good idea. So I get up there. I'm kind of slurring. I don't know that I'm making total sense. I'm definitely telling jokes that, like, not really racially sensitive. Like, when I look at the crowd, not really aware – my wife leaves the room. Just leave. <laughs> Half the people are horrified. Yeah. Half the people are laughing, and I remember my that's wife. That's how back you in know
0: that's the right mix. That's exactly the right mix.
1: <laughs> so, so my wife comes back in it like forever later. I'm still up there, and like <laughs> there was this one. I remember this one woman afterwards. She's like, "You must have been the most fascinating child." Like she thought it was great. And I remember this one like really like formal staunchy successful financial guy was just looking at me like what is wrong with you you know and and so that that was my wife's anchor anytime i was like you know i should do an open mic she's like "Eh, i don't know if you're as funny as you think you are like babe when i speak on money people laugh all the time she's like you're making them money they're being nice that's what she said but we came home from this long summer trip away and i'm telling her these jokes at an atlanta braves game Mm. we're sitting at the game In Marietta, Georgia, and it was a little slow. So I'm telling jokes. She's like, That's funny. Where'd you get that from? I'm like, From my brain. Yes. And then that Sunday, I spoke for the first time in months for my buddy Keith, and he goes, Our next speaker's effing hilarious. And I'm like, What? I'm giving a financial talk. Right. So I get up and do three minutes of jokes, right? And when I finished telling the jokes, like, I was hooked because people were laughing. So I called my buddy Marcus, who was runner up on Last Comic Standing. I'm like, Dude. I look like Jesus, I don't have his powers. I want to write a bit about that mm-hmm. and do an open mic so when my hair's down and I was younger. So, I did and, and when I did it, he was like, "Dude, you should open for me." So I just did that for a couple of years Incredible. as a hobby. Incredible. But where's the thing? I my wife saw the look in my eyes and she goes, "I can see what's going on. You're going to be addicted <laughs> to this. You're going to be traveling I'm like Babe, we're not traveling for this. No way." 2 days later, Marcus calls me we're going to Grand Junction, Colorado, the Mesa Theater. I'm like, in, totally in. Yeah. And then I tell my wife, I'm like, babe, we're going to Grand Junction right after Thanksgiving. You want to know why? She's like, why? I'm like, because I'm doing comedy. She goes, I told you. I'm like, no, no, my family lives in Grand Junction. They're doing Thanksgiving on the other side of the family that we would be doing the other year. I'm like, they got to come. And they, my family, they laughed so hard that night. You know, just they got these loud, loud laughs.
0: And so, such a special night. But my wife, totally knew that i would be addicted whenever somebody says i'm going to try comedy and my wish to them is i I hope you bomb and i say that because if you bomb and you hate it then it was not for you but if you bomb and you still go back then you've got it you've got the disease and it's not curable and so i'm sorry but you're gonna have to learn to live with it and so is your spouse or soon-to-be ex-spouse that's where this thing goes man it's not a pretty road but how do you what were you doing when you started doing comedy what was your job when the bug bit you
1: i was a founder of a business i was using elements of comedy in my speeches but it was like Mm -hmm. sprinkled in right and by the way it is easy to be funny when nobody's expecting it for sure (laughs) yeah you know and so my wife was kind of right there but that's what i was doing and then when we would get together as a bunch of friends, I'm always telling jokes. I, I'm always like kind of roasting people naturally, and so I was in a place in the business where I had enough space to to have a, a hobby that would take me, in you know, a lot of time, like like comedy was. And then what happened is in August of 2019, my friends are filming their comedy special, and it was really cool because it was the first time I'd done comedy in a round. It was in a like mini stadium, mm-hmm. like a little auditorium, and. That was my favorite. I could just feel laughter all around me, and it slowed me down. There was time for the jokes to fully develop and people to laugh. There was a guy in there that's been in comedy for a long time, Barry Katz, and he was just like, sure, "Hey I've man, met Barry, yeah, Barry, he's like, Barry, Barry, <laughs> inevitably, <laughs> it's just dude, his kids can roast him like you wouldn't believe." But he just came up and he goes, "Nobody's done what you're doing in money, and like, if you if you're ready to be a comedian, I'd represent you." And I was like. I don't know man this is a hobby let me think about it so then he talked me into doing a special which mm-hmm. i'm really glad he did got marty colliner to be the executive producer which i mean he's a legend in in producing and directing just did the hall for uh netflix so you know his best man at his wedding was george carlin so wow. i'm like this he taught me so much and here's the crazy thing so i decide to do a special november 15th, 2020 i was like okay i'm gonna do it and barry brings me on his podcast. And I, we were joking that I should film it April 15th because the name of the special is called the American ream. And I'm like tax day. That's the American ream. And so he announces it. So think about it. I start writing it November 15th as a rookie. Like I've been doing comedy for a few years, but as a hobby. Yep. And I basically
0: told my business partners, I'm going to work on this every day. For five months, you wrote an hour. And I've listened to the whole thing. How much of that was new and how much of that was stuff you had pulled from the past? the money stuff was probably 80% new mm-hmm. the family stuff
1: was about 50 so like i had been doing a lot of the jokes about jesus and yeah. and like raising kids like in my 20 minute set but the money stuff i had done a couple pieces that i would check her in but most of it was new and here's the deal i only went on comedy stages six times from the november 15th to april 15th where I was actually on a comedy stage. What I did was I turned my house into a comedy club, Mm. and Mm. I would do Zooms five days a week. And I remember the first one Barry came on, he couldn't believe my timing. He didn't know I was cheating. You couldn't see the crowd on the Zoom because the crowd was sitting behind the camera. Mm -hmm. And so I had like six people there. So like my timing was so good, and they were laughing so hard. And he was just like, and, and by the way, what was nice is I'm writing the jokes. so I had them on a teleprompter because the crowd was behind the teleprompter. The camera was coming through the teleprompter. So anyone was, it was look, I was looking at you, yep. but I'm reading. That's the setup the I have telepromp- right here, right
0: now. That's what yeah. I'm doing.
1: Right. So, so basically there were times I was doing that. It was five to 6 PM every day, Monday through Friday. Mm. And then sometimes I would go to a friend's house that was hosting a dinner on the weekend and do comedy and, hard because sometimes one person would show up to the zoom yeah so i'd be doing comedy for one person on zoom
0: Zoom. please sir mute your please mute your phone because the laughter is too much coming through you you're distracting the comedian (laughs) this is
1: what's crazy so i had this idea i said it was an idea that my wife gave me that it's not true at least she said it wasn't true that i should do a rehearsal the night before we record but the people who couldn't make it the night of, or especially because like COVID people didn't want to fly in. So that I just like, what about anyone that's my close friend? So I had like 40 people on Zoom and like four people in person. The in-person people were not laughers. They were kind of like intellectual. So like, it was like not getting any feedback from them. And it was our camera crew watching my movement and my staging. It was the worst I've ever bombed since i've done comedy the night before we filmed the special (laughs) the worst
0: well dude you can't but bombing on zoom it's not fair i did dozens of zoom shows through covid right and it's just like you have to try to get them okay half of you turn your microphones on so that we can actually hear people laughing but please be cognizant of your dog barking in the background and all this kind of stuff it's not the same thing i mean it's like training with a weight vest on and then you go to a live show and you're like oh like real live people in front of me that's so easy compared to trying to make some person that's an avatar laugh
1: i learned so much that night though like first off i was tired like everybody's flying in i'm i'm going to check out the set just before i'm still talking to the team about everything because we had four unions that we're working with we had (laughs) Social distancing, COVID testing. We had oh all these restrictions that were going on. So it was, it was a bit stressful. And all of a sudden, it was like, all right, come do this set. And what I learned was, first off, I don't know that I'm capable of being funny if I'm thinking in my mind and not saying what's in my mind. Mm-hmm. So like, that was the lesson. If I had a different conversation in my head than what I was saying, it means I'm not with the crowd. Totally. And I learned it that night, right? So I was like, oh, crap. I was thinking, like, should I do this next Bit or should I just skip that and go to the next one? So I wasn't thinking, and I kept saying, "I don't know." I was saying that out loud because it was my internal conversation. So, second is I just learned like acknowledging what is is the most important thing from stage. So I should have just said, "This hasn't been funny the last two minutes." Oh my god! I, would you like, and I should have made fun of myself and been self deprecating. And then what I should have done was there's this guy Walker who has the biggest laugh of anyone I know. Wanted him to come to the special taping. But he couldn't make it because his wife was like having a baby. And I was like, oh, oh that's, uh, that's in inconvenient. It. Yeah. What in it? yeah. So, so he comes onto the Zoom like five minutes late. Hits mute. I'm like, Walker, dude, you have the biggest laugh. He goes, well, I didn't want to like interrupt anything. I'm like, interrupt a comedian with laughter? It's almost like what you were joking about earlier, right? So I remember I finished my set. It's terrible. And. Then this woman, Sally, who's an awesome author, she gets on and she goes, I'm just proud of you for doing this. Like, it's really cool to see you pursuing your dream. Like, what made you decide to do this? And then for 10 minutes, like our conversation and everything was just in flow. And Barry pulls me aside. He goes, Who was that guy the last 10 minutes? That's who needs to show up tomorrow. Then he just told me war stories of comedian after comedian bombing on their final set before their special. And he was telling me, It's a good omen. He's like, And so the next day, I just remember thinking, anything i think on stage for that because i did four hours that night i'm like anything i think on stage i'm saying so the first set my son yawned, i'm like oh my son's yawning in the middle of filming this because i know they can edit it out right? right i see my aunt i'm like i remember when i peed my pants at your house because i was worried about world war three like i just said whatever came to mind i didn't say two words the whole night that came to my mind at 10 30 my head goes i'm tired So I just stopped in the middle of the joke, took a drink of the water, patted off my forehead, sat on the stool, and I was like, thank you for coming and being here tonight, and just talked to him for a minute, then went back in. And it just went right. I can't believe, like, you watched the special. I mean, for a dude that had been doing it as a hobby, and that was my first thing, and I'd only been on stage for 33 minutes ever on comedy. That was Mm. then four hours that night. Wow. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. You know, like, sure, I had everybody in the crowd knew me. It was definitely the easiest crowd I could have asked for.
0: As somebody who's a bitter comedian who's been doing it for a decade, I'm always ready to be judgmental. And I was like, <laughs> I was prepared to hate it. You know, I was I was hoping to hate it, you know, because that would make me feel better about myself. But I was like, holy shit, this production is fantastic, first of all. It's tight. There's places where I'm like, oh, that feel like it bobs and weaves, but like, God damn, that's a that's a good product, man. But that comes back to like who are you like how do you make money like where does this fit into the overall garrett gunderson brand mission contribution to the world some of which is monetized better than other parts the way i make money one way is
1: i have this children's book coming out in (laughs) january
0: (laughs) shameless plug that'll pay for a couple of meals at at mcdonald's the good news
1: is my co-author has sold three million copies of children's books amazing and We're getting massive progress with like Barnes and Noble wanting to get into all schools. And like, yeah, we're getting a lot of momentum on that. So selling books, definitely. And then also I get paid to go speak and I get paid. Like I did a comedy tour because I'm an idiot after my special right so i did the special then i did the american ring comedy tour which by the way made me think i could have done 50 percent better with that special i don't had i done the tour first I, I don't know maybe maybe not who knows i just knew which jokes to have different timing on yeah tag a little bit better or cut yeah like as i watched the special a few wall street jokes i cut those from the tour right, right? so anyway thanks for the compliment on the thing i do appreciate it, it means a lot but I, I sell books and I do consulting. Like people fly into Utah, spend a day with me. It's a pretty high price. I also get paid to go do speeches. So yeah, the, those are kind of the main ways that I get paid. And then I just spend my money on comedy. So
0: I I get paid in these other things. I spend my money on <laughs> yeah. comedy. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've got a zero or two on top of what I'm doing. But I think about my speaking and some of the corporate stuff that I do as a way to pay for this podcast, right? Like this is this is fun, but it's a money loser. But the way I look at it is if I'm netting out, you know, positive, then I'm doing okay. There's a way to fund this and that's what I do. And it makes me work harder and it gives me a a goal to shoot for because it's like, okay, I need to make, you know, however much money every year to pay for the things that I really want to do. What do you want? Like, what mark do you want to leave on the world? I mean, you're not just doing comedy to do comedy. You're doing comedy with a message. You're speaking with a message. What's the thing inside of you that you want to, what's the residue you want to leave behind? So the first 25 years of my life, it was really, I
1: wanted to help 1 million people become financially independent so they could change their family's future and destiny. Like I came from that coal mining family yeah. and it feels really good to be able to pay for some things for my parents every now and again. It feels good to be able to, you know, like take these great trips as a, as a family and, and be the catalyst of that. Because I've really, you know, been able to do pretty well and, and kind of pay that back to the family. So that was the first part. But now that I have the entertainment bug, I really want to plant a seed of hope, connection, and expression in the hearts of a billion people by the time I die. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a egomaniac, I say a billion, but like the reality is Why not? I just feel like I feel like entertainment is the new language of education. It's the gateway to transformation. And I love that I could go and tell some jokes and have a lot of fun, but leave a little bit of a mark on someone where they ask a different question, see something just a little bit differently. And ultimately, like I really think that the comedy special more than anything, Here was the coolest part that you might not know, is my son opened for me, he was 13 years old.
0: I heard him do the intro, but yeah. I didn't hear his set.
1: So Marcus, who really was the, the guy that I called and I opened for for years, he did the crowd warm-up and worked with the DJ and all that kind of stuff and told him like how this would go with filming and preparing. But then he introduced my son and he said, Hey, the comedy apple didn't fall far from the tree. Garrett's son Roman is coming up. Roman's thirteen years old. The crowd went berserk mm. because just a kid up there and he's he's so cold hearted man and blooded because I was working on my material, you know, I had all these financial bits I was trying out but I had people come to see me for the first time at wise guys. Yeah. And I was like, damn, I don't want to bomb on new material with these people coming that have never heard me. And so I'm working on it. I'm pacing outside. I'm in the green room. My son's working on me. I'm like, Hey dude, you want to go over your set? He goes, yeah, I'm good. I'm like, you bring your journal or anything? He's like, I got it. Right. He's like, are you cool if I just go out and talk to the people? So he's out talking to people in the, like in the entryway yeah. and at their seats and, he got up and did his first bit ever at, at Wise Guys and he and he did really well. So that night he did 5 minutes. He opened with a pedophile joke first off that I didn't know that he had written and I it was it just made me laugh so hard. I'm just sitting in the whatever that room is like the I don't know what they call it where all the monitors are and all that yeah. kind of stuff just watching him and the crowd was loving it and he was so He's kind of charming. So, like, people are laughing. He goes, I'm not even saying anything. What are you guys laughing about? But it's because of his mannerisms and stuff. And so, let's see him go to an open
0: mic. Let's see how he does at the open mics where it's all comics.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know what? We're spoiled here in Utah. Yeah. Cause wise guys open mics are insane. Are they really? Like, I've only had one bad open mic at wise guys, and it was because I made some choices that were probably not the best. I just got up and I looked out, and it's Utah. Yep. so in utah you usually just see a bunch of white people yep and i looked out and there wasn't a single white person really i was like Damn, this is crazy the jazz so were at the club even, tonight yeah the, even the mc was middle eastern so i get up and i go I just want to let you guys know like i hate racism like i think we should get rid of racism but can we keep the jokes No laughter. And I'm like, I I know you guys are wondering what a tall, white, handsome Utah knows about racism. First off, thank you. And second, I lived in Korea. They're racist as shit. And so, like, I just went into this whole bit. No laughter, no laughter, no laughter. But I just kept going at it. And the thing is, I know that bit's funny because I did it on my second tour and it always got the biggest laughs. And especially from koreans that would be like yelling out from the crowd (laughs) right understand that they're racism so yeah but my son just killed it man it was so cool to have him open for me that's great he made fun of me two or three times so that like the crowd all knew
0: me so that was really cool too that's great let's talk about how you, you there's a couple things you nuggets of wisdom that you drop in here that you talk about let's talk about the difference between frugal and cheap I got a pretty good chuckle out of that. Being a guy who considers himself to be frugal. What's funny is so like in the first show,
1: I do the frugal cheap joke and my buddy Todd, this Asian guy sitting to the right and his fiance, she's elbowing him and I catch it from the corner of my eye. So I just go there. Right. And I just talk to him the whole time. I'm like, what's the difference of frugal and cheap? I'm like, well, you know, I'm talking about like, Hey, when, What people say to your face is frugal. What they say behind your back is cheap. You know, and I'm like, if you find, and I did all these things, like if you buy that toilet paper that's so thin that it, you know, it can't even pick up a donut or feels like sandpaper on your ass, that's cheap. Frugal's that buying it on sale. Like just kind of went through these distinctions. And I think the special, I put about half of the distinctions in from what I wrote. And the thing is, I grew up, my family's favorite jokes ever Is when I was dating my wife, I was one hundred percent cheap. This wasn't frugal. Our first Christmas together, I bought her a ninety-nine cent phone case as her gift that didn't fit her phone properly. (laughs) You're such
0: a romantic,
1: Garrett. I told, like, when we were getting married, her dad's like, "If you want to live in our basement rent free, you can." I'm like, "Babe, we can live in your parents' basement rent free," and she's like. Sex-free. If you think that's where I'm living, like that was her response, which touche. Like impressed with her, but like my family loves the cheapskate stories and telling that. Like frugal is being responsible and mindful. Cheap is being consumed by the thoughts of cutting back. It's like driving 30 miles off course because there's cheaper gas, or buying in bulk on things you would never eat because. One day, that's going to save you the money. It's spending 10 hours coupon clipping rather than saving the 10 hours
0: and just buying something for 10 cents more. Didn't you say that frugal is the person that has the money and cheap is the other person? How did you structure that joke? I'm trying to think how that joke was. Somebody else is cheap, but if you're cheap, but you view it as being frugal because frugal has the implication of wisdom and propriety about it as opposed to just being parsimonious and scroogey about cash. Yeah, I was talking about like, Someone at a funeral,
1: you know, like everybody like at a funeral, people get up and talk about people that I've never met before because they edify them in a way you're like, who are they talking about? So like at a funeral, someone's speech would talk about how frugal this person is, but there's no food at the funeral because they're so damn cheap. They probably try to take the money to the grave. That was kind of that context. Yeah, I was definitely a cheapskate, man.
0: Your parents didn't have a lot of money. Were they frugal or cheap?
1: I don't know if this was in the comedy special, but I have this whole thing about... My grandparents and it kind of trickled to my parents a bit put cash in coffee cans and put it Mm. in the cellar. Like they definitely grew up because my great grandfather, he came to America from Italy and barely could make ends meet, lived in a tent. And his wife had to stay in Italy because they didn't have mu- enough money to s- get them both here. And he would send money back, mm. right? Which I don't even know how you sent money in 1930, right? Like, is it for sure getting there? I mean, it seems like a, a risky venture. But he lived in that tent and his wife was pregnant. He didn't see his daughter until she was seven years old. That's Gosh. what it took him to save up the money. So that permeates into my family yeah. where they were definitely cheap. But what was interesting is Even though my grandpa was pretty cheap when it came to his grandkids, never cheap. Like always contributing, giving money, supporting, but like otherwise never spent money and literally would show me the coffee cans, the old, old rusted Folgers can, pull that plastic lid off and there were rolled up bills in the cellar. Like that's my great aunt, his sister had $530,000 in a savings account and was applying for welfare. That's how cheap she was. (laughs) Yeah, that's cheap.
0: (laughs) That's incredible. How has your relationship with money changed as you've become more successful? You've started a lot of businesses. You started young. You've been in a variety of businesses. How has your relationship changed in those years now that you've gone from scarcity to plenty? It's changed dramatically. In my 20s,
1: money to me was the story of my value meaning if i i wanted to be a millionaire and i got there when i was 26 by just sheer grit and hustle and relentless working and honestly lucky that my wife was patient enough to stay with me Mm. because it just we lived in in a crappy apartment i'm making six figures she's like what do you think about having kids i'm like we have to save this much amount of money first and we did it Fast because I made a lot of money. She just never knew we had it because I was such a damn miser. (laughs) And, And I just thought of myself as what I had in money determined who I was and how valuable people would think I was. So I really obsessed about it far more than I would like to admit. And it wasn't having money that made the shift. It was actually 2008 and getting my butt kicked in real estate that had me really have to get into the depths and understand that, like, we don't walk around with a net worth sign being like, well, we will maybe one day with, if you've seen WeChat with China, you know, who knows, maybe one day we'll know. But right now you don't know. Yeah. People obsess about it because it's
0: kind of what's been taught as our self-worth. You know what your friends, how your friends are doing though. And you know where you sit relative to them more or less on sort of a financial scale, right? To a degree, but like I have a
1: friend that I just found out his business is doing fifty million dollars a year, and I knew he exited three companies. But like, you know, he's so damn generous, and he never throws it in your face. Where I have other friends that back in the day always talked about how much they had, which means they probably didn't have nearly as much because they were trying to push it out there. So I think that there's a there's an aesthetic or like a viewpoint that you can look and see what someone has based upon how they operate. But that doesn't always translate because some people are so cheap that even if they have a lot, you would never know. That's that whole millionaire next door book. Yep. That some people are. You know, like when I find out another one of my friends had a sixty five million dollar revenue business, I would have never known. He's never once talked about any of that ever. Mm. Yet he's just a nice guy. And then I think back to my twenties, like how I was like I just I went from an $8 million net worth in 2007 to a $0 net worth in 2008. It was a very sharp decline.
0: Let me see if I can do the math on that. You lost $8 million.
1: Yeah. And, and yet, you know, like coming out the other side, I really owe a lot to my wife because she just always is like this mirror asking a ton of questions. And I really did, in the depths of that... I had to go do some real like personal development and personal work and like contemplation and journaling and like I just became less of an asshole honestly like I was an asshole in my 20s but I didn't know I was an asshole I thought I was a good guy mm-hmm. and I wanted to be a good guy but as I look back to my thoughts and my viewpoints and how much like I said the douchiest thing ever in 2007 let's have it I'm I'm on the cover of a magazine and they went and did a photo shoot with me in the salt flats. I had a Bentley and I had these designer boots that had some weird cross on it. And it was like this shot that they put on the cover of the magazine with my Bentley and my boot. And you could kind of see the side of my face. And they interviewed me and I was like, you know, I've just made so much money that I just want to start giving it back. And you know what? The universe was like, yeah, we're going to give it back to the banks, asshole. And I went from $8 million to zero by saying that dumb of a thing. I remember once I'm at a hotel and they didn't park my Bentley up front and I turn them off. I'm like, what's wrong with them? She goes, what's wrong with you? Like, why? who are you now that you're defined by this car that you're driving? You're kind of a douchebag. And so it, it helped to go through losing all of that when I thought I was so great to really rethink about what money meant as a byproduct of value as a tool that's useful and efficient. And it's still something that I grapple with sometimes because now I look at my assets as comedy specials and books and businesses, where in my 20s, I looked at it as net worth. And sometimes net worth is so easy to measure when it's a monetary thing, where these other things like, what's that worth? I don't know, how many are we going to sell? You know, Or mm. how, what's going to happen? I mean, the comedy special, we're in negotiation right now with a major distributor. So, maybe that will take off, but this has been years since I filmed it. And the only people who see it are people that are other comedians like you. I'm like, will you please watch my stuff? No, I mean, <laughs> a few people have seen it, but you
0: know, yeah. Okay. Your Bentley story reminds me of a concept. Tell me what a financial dick pic is. Ah, oh, yeah. Financial dick pic. So, <laughs> I thought
1: of this one day because, like, these people that go on Instagram and they, they can't help themselves but rent a Lamborghini or they're riding on a private plane or whatever, and they got to send a picture to show how cool they are. I know. And even worse is when the Airbnb they're going to isn't theirs, but they pretend it is. I call that the financial dick pic because you got to be a dick to post a picture like that, right? (laughs) And so when I remember my friend was like, you really need to get pictures with your Bentley. And even worse, I had to escalate there too. So it was just like two vehicles that... We're out there on the salt flats getting these pictures for this magazine spread and then i post on social media and someone really said you are one hell of a douchebag and then i like looked at it and i was like i think they're right i actually think that that's (laughs) a valid point i i (laughs) so what do you drive now i drive a ford raptor which it's a
0: man's truck it's a man's truck
1: well, you would think it's a man's truck, but from my hometown, the fact that it's not a diesel, they're like, why are you driving that car? It's not a dually. Car? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's not a dually. And then my wealthy friends are like, why are you so white trash that you drive that truck? So <laughs> that's a truck for me, man. I My favorite vehicle of all time. And you know what? For those people watching this that own a Bentley, it's fine. I just wasn't a car guy. My partners in business said... Why are you driving the same car we're going to give to the assistant? You got to drive something nicer. So I buy this Bentley. And the only reason I bought a Bentley, to be candid, is I took my dad to Scotland. That's where I retired from golf. I'm the awful golfer, but I took him. And there was a Jaguar convention. And so all those cars are there. And all of a sudden, a guy drives up in a Bentley, and everybody just bombarded him. And I was like, that seems like a cool car. So I didn't ever even drive one. It was purely to be like, look at me and how cool I am. But the reality was when my partner's like, we're going to attract high-end clients, let me tell you what that was really like. We attracted high schoolers. They were super impressed with the car. (laughs) Not really good wealth management clients. Yeah. I remember driving to a restaurant that I'd been to before, and it's a restaurant where they all wear these French, they're all boosted up and quartet, whatever that's called. I, I I don't know. I can't think of it right now, but corset. So like, I've been there before no girl paid attention to me, said a word to me. All of those waitresses were like, hey, can we go for a ride in your car? I'm like, ah, I'm married. They're like, we don't care. I'm like, yes. So if we were going for girls that wanted to sleep with a married man or high schoolers, that car did all the work it was supposed to do. But as far as attracting one single client,
0: I think it repelled more than it actually brought. Losing $8 million has got to be an experience that resets your brain. And your hair. I went really gray during that time, bro. Well, really too bad. At least you still have that hair. <laughs> you mentioned in one of your talks that I watched a more tragic experience. You lost your business partners in an airline crash. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from that experience?
1: It took me a while to learn. It took about like four months from the crash. So I thought I was doing the noble thing when they, when they died by saying, I will keep every one of our 42 employees. But now we have two partners left out of four, right? Three offices. I'm driving an hour to their office every day to run that one, delegating my office to someone else. And my son would be asleep when I'd left for work in the morning. He was one at the time. And by the time I got home late at night and after four months, I gained at least 25 pounds, not the kind of weight that you want to put on. And I was exhausted. So, I call it diminishing marginal productivity, probably learned it in economics and in college or something. And I just, the first day I ever took off from the time my partners died, June 9th of '06, till just the day before Thanksgiving, I came home, we're going to my family's house in Price two hours from where we lived and we're halfway through the drive and my wife and I hadn't spoken a word and she was driving because I was too tired to drive. And we had everything that people would, on the outside, think was wealth. The Bentley, the nice house, beautiful office, all that kind of stuff. And I was as broken mentally as I'd ever been. And I remember my wife just looked at our son in the back seat and looked at me, and she goes, you know what? You're an extraordinary businessman. You really are. She goes, but just an ordinary husband and father. Mm-hmm. And so like, what I learned from them dying was, I was trying to sacrifice my life to preserve their legacy and they weren't even alive anymore. And they would have never wanted me to do that. And so once she said that, I worked for one more week and then I took the entire month of December off. And I just spent time with my son and my wife. And then they would sleep and I still had energy. And I started writing my first book because I was like energized and not exhausted. So what I learned from that is we think we have to sacrifice to succeed, but the reality is we just have to create a game worth playing, and then we've, we win and enjoy the process. Even when I was creating the comedy special, I enjoyed going up and doing a set at a comedy club, and I remember I crushed this set one night on my new insurance material. And I think if you can make insurance funny, like you got to be a <laughs> decent comedian. And I remember we went out to the bar afterwards with my wife and some of her friends, and I was just like, "This is, this is good. I'm not... I'm not going, ooh, this will be great for the set. It was like, no, I'm just enjoying this tonight. And so the biggest lesson was enjoy the moments. Like, A, they were 35 when they died. You know, it's unexpected. So, like, enjoy the process because most people are living into it'll be better one day, someday. And then they miss out on all that life has to offer along the way. And I was missing out on life for those four months.
0: I read one of your articles on your website and it, and it kind of struck me I'm going to publish something on my Substack tomorrow that I'm a little worried about and by the time this comes out it'll be last week so so who knows how it'll have uh, played or if anybody even saw it. I write about money and the meaning of life and I'm going to write more about politics tomorrow. Not be writing about politics scares me because one I'm Not exhausted too. by it. But there's things that need to be said right now by reasonable people who can see the fallacy of both extremes on right and left. And I read your probably 80% of people, man. I think that so. Can see that. And I I just think there's so much bullshit on both sides of the aisle, and most people are just like, they're afraid to talk about it, we're exhausted by it. There's a reason Facebook has started to deprioritize political content on the platform, and not just because of uh, all the bad press they get for it, because it's bad for people's mental health. That being said, I'm going to write this thing, and as I'm perusing your website, I see this article called Stop Censoring Yourself. Tell me how you've come to this place where you just do not want to not say what you need to say
1: you saw my comedy special it's pg-13 it's which is but you
0: know what i was like oh god please don't let at the same time i was ready to hate it i was also like please don't let this suck please don't let this be some sanitized you know kind of like church level kind of assessment about money i don't want to hear that but it's it's not it's i can see how it could have gotten dirtier but it's a real thing you know you talk real talk so the second tour What happened was I was
1: headlining a Friday and a Saturday, and on Friday, I did my American Ream, which is the comedy special you saw, and I just was bored because I had done it a lot. And so I was like, I only have 24 hours till the next set. I don't have a a new set planned. I'm just going to write a few notes on a three by five card of all the funny things that have happened in my life and what it was like being raised in Utah and people thinking I'm Mormon when I'm not. And my parents came that night, which was super cool. And my wife was front row with her friend that she always hurtfully says is the funniest person she knows, which is just something that we're going <laughs> to have to do. That's not like an accident. Therapy. It's not an accident. So, so anyway, another woman came to both shows. And the second show, I re-listened to it. It's not my funniest set ever, but the crowd was so engaged. And I just went uncensored. I told the joke about growing up Catholic but not super religious and being like, ah, oh, wait, that's the same thing. I'm like, but I was an altar boy, not one of the lucky ones. And so like, that was the first <laughs> uncensored moment. And then I went into all this stuff. I did swear quite a bit. It's not really on brand for me publicly, but it's just what I needed to do. And that second tour, I took my buddy Ian and we call it the coming together tour. Cause you know, he's a, he's a comedian. It was his first tour and he's edgy. So he kept, giving me permission each night to kind of explore that. And one of the stops, I censored myself because one of my clients in the financial world brought like 50 people, mostly Mormon. And I had all these Mormon jokes that I didn't want to offend them with. And I censored myself. And even when I re-listened the set, because I record them all, it was like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I remembered. But I knew deep down that I wasn't being who I really am. Because I was trying to appease people, and so I've never really done that in finance. I've been bold, like I my first book, "Killing Sacred Cows." The title says, like I'm going to be straight up about these things. And I was saying that 401ks are problematic and misleading, and you know all this kind of stuff. And then I am doing a huge amount of media because it was right when the market imploded, and I was right. So that Tempe stop was like the second stop and it was so different than the first stop of the tour in vegas where it was like my best set ever so then i was like the rest of the tour i'm just going to be uncensored and whatever comes to my mind and dude i told a few jokes i was super uncomfortable with like i was like (laughs) i don't really like that this is the thought that came to my mind like this is something that my little sister is going to be pissed about when she hears and then i went home and told her what i did and even though it's like a big trigger for her i had her laughing even though she felt bad about laughing so so like that really made a big difference for me to be like this doesn't mean how my comedy always has to be but just that i'm okay going there even if it's you know uncomfortable i remember going to the the comedy store in la jolla one of my favorite clubs and just on the way up i'm like i'm in la jolla because i'm a best man tomorrow so i'm gonna tell the story and i just walked up i'm like man i'm gonna be a best man at a wedding tomorrow super surprised he asked me Considering I fucked his sister, (laughs) I'm like, sure, I married her, but still. You know, and it was like, that was just a great start right out the gate. They were with me. And then I made fun of him for marrying a girl 20 years younger than him. His friends were there. They were laughing. I took it into my speech as a best man because his wife said it was okay. She was laughing. Her parents were laughing. Her uncle was pissed. But it was like, you know, that uncensored just made me feel so much better about the tour. But it's not what I'm putting on video and it's not what I'm putting online because I don't know that it's exactly my brand, but I got to be willing to go there to just
0: feel good about who I am. I think that's the next, the wall we've got to break through to get to that next level to say like, look, I'm going to say something. I'm like, I know the fundamentals. I know how to do the jokes. I got a good 45 to an hour, you know, like I can make pretty much any audience laugh, but it's like, how do you go to where you just turn the pitch of that learning curve to the steepest part it can be. And I think that's kind of where I want to go next. But I want to hear more about the books you have coming out. Cause you've got a couple of books coming out. The children's book you've already mentioned. That's called I am money that comes out when
1: January 2nd of 2024.
0: What's the point of
1: I am money. What do you want to do? When we get older and money starts to feel heavy and complex and we've got a lot of misinformation, it's super hard to to deal with when we're in the emotion of it. But as a kid, if we could learn the basics of with money, you can earn it, you can spend it, you could save it, or you could give it away. And if you get enough of it that you could take care of yourself, you could share. But the best place to put it is in yourself to develop your skills and your life and, and enjoy it along the way. Like That's a different message than most people get around money. and money is the character in the book, which is a great way to talk about what money is. So it talks about money's credit card coats, or it's crypto coats, or so it's like really like fun story that also I think I think parents are going to learn when they read it to their kids. And let's face it.
0: (laughs) Oh, I forgot money could do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So this book comes out in October, Money Unmasked. And the difference is, I know even if people buy this, more people will read the children's book. So my chance of planting a seed of hope, connection, expression is greater with the children's book, but I've been writing this other one for seven years. I think it's my best book yet. I've hit New York Times and Wall Street Journal with my other books, but moneyunmasked.com is where you can pre-order the book because it comes out in October. What's cool is if people order the book and then later you'll see instructions on the website, if they email me, I'm going to give them comedy that isn't released. It's the seven different places I went and did comedy. Um, that we filmed professionally, and I'm going to turn it into one sub special that's different than the comedy special. Oh, so cool. the jokes, you know. And then they'll also get the money persona quiz, so they know what their money persona is. And they'll also what other? Oh, and they'll also get a workbook and an audio on how to discover their money persona, which dictates their success or failure around money. So they'll get those three bonuses with one purchase of the book. So I'm definitely want them to buy the book. You know,
0: cool. That's a, yeah. So moneyunmasked.com is the website. Moneyunmasked.com. We will put the link to that in the show notes. What else do we need to know, Garrett? Anything else? I think you're an amazing interviewer. Your
1: questions just made this a lot of fun for me. I loved your how you're candid about, I didn't want to like it because I've been there. There's comedians. <laughs> I'm like, I like them, but I don't like them because they're so damn good and it makes me right. jealous. But right. at the same time, like... I got to acknowledge how great they are. So I have those bouts every now and again. So I totally understand it. But yeah, I just thought your questions were very, very good, like very thoughtful and made for an amazing interview. And I really appreciate it.
0: I appreciate you, man. Thanks for the work you do. And uh, like I said, folks, the link to Garrett's book at moneyonmass.com will be in the show notes. Garrett, thanks for joining us. Hey, take care. Thanks to Garrett Gunderson for that fun conversation. Good to meet that guy. Interesting how similar a lot of the stuff we were thinking about working on is and uh good to have a fellow traveler in the space of comedy and asking the big questions about money. I have coming up next week, one of the most important conversations of the year, certainly and maybe of all the podcasts I've done, Melissa Kearney is a professor at the University of Maryland. She's an economics professor and she's written a book called The Two-Parent Privilege and it's... As economics books go, it's somewhat controversial because it challenges some fashionable uh, thoughts around marriage and how important it is. It turns out when measuring outcomes for kids, having two parents in the home is very, very important. It's not judgmental. It's just looking at the data and saying, what's going on here and how can we create a society with the most stable families because stable families produce stable adults who are more economically autonomous than unstable adults. And that's just the facts, Jack. So by all means, uh, look out for that one, Melissa Kearney. Next week on Crazy Money. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.